FM 91 KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls and Blackfoot, serving Southeast Idaho's public radio needs for over 12 years. This hour, it's the Idaho Falls City Club broadcast featuring Idaho Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger S. Burdick. have as our speaker Roger S. Burdick, Chief Justice of the Idaho Supreme Court. His preparation for that very high office uh, could only be considered classic. Shortly after he graduated from law school, he went to work for a law firm in the Magic Valley, uh, at that time the senior partner of which, Lloyd Webb, was a legend, literally, in the practice of law in the state of Idaho. Roger Burdick started his practice with that kind of influence. He later on was a deputy prosecuting attorney in Ada County. He then served as a public defender throughout South Central Idaho, and he was then the prosecuting attorney, elected prosecuting attorney in Jerome County. So consider that background now. Private practice, prosecuting attorney in two of Idaho's more populous counties, and a public defender throughout a number of counties in south-central Idaho. Following that, he was appointed magistrate judge in Jerome County and served in that role for 12 years after 1981. Then in 1993, he was appointed to the district court bench, our courts of general trial jurisdiction, and that again was in Jerome County. He served in that office in a very distinguished way, held a number of jobs, was president of the District Court Judges Association, and in the last two years of his tenure in that job, he was the Snake River Basin Adjudication Judge. You all remember that, of course, Idaho praised its water rights through a period of more than 20 years, establishing a statutory basis for claims to water rights in this state, which had never been done before. And the job of being the judge in that was a very special responsibility and, again, gave Justice Burdick a very unique opportunity to see a very important part of Idaho law in its most fundamental way. In 2003, he was appointed by uh, Governor Dirk Kempthorne to be the 53rd Justice of the Idaho Supreme Court. And soon thereafter, really 2007, he became Vice Chief Justice, and just as of August of this year, uh, his colleagues on the court elected him to be their Chief Justice for a period of four years. Roger Burdick is a graduate of the University of Colorado, and he is a graduate of the University of Idaho College of Law. Let's welcome him as our speaker. I have been blessed to be able to do many, many things in the Idaho uh, legal system. Uh, Quite frankly, we're all very lucky that we have the Idaho legal system as it exists today, and I hope to give you some of the perspectives of uh, our court and how we will be running the uh, Idaho legal system in the future. I think we have a remarkable group of jurists on the Supreme Court at this time, 
over 100 years of trial practice. Um, three of us have been magistrates and district judges, two with extensive litigation, Jim Jones, Justice Jim Jones, with his uh, work as Attorney General for, I believe, two terms. It's a very wonderful set of backgrounds and opinions that we hope help frame the future of Idaho's uh, legal landscape in the future for many decades to come. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, drive perspectives of any group are internal pressures and exterior pressures. Uh, in the internal pressures, they are pressures of excellence, they are pressures of improvement, they are uh, pressures of any group. From the exterior, <clears throat> Idaho has a significant political background in its judiciary. As a result, there are political pressures, there are economic pressures at this point in time, but any group is uh, formed and has to respond to those uh, different pressures, and I hope to discuss with you some of them here today. The other thing that I'd like to note is that Idaho is very well positioned to respond to internal and external pressures. A lot of people have a myth about the Idaho State Supreme Court, that we are in charge of everything, we run the system, we, uh, uh, we are in fact a very centralized group of managers and we send missives down and people uh, do them. Well, as you probably know as attorneys and judges, nothing could be further from the truth in the state of Idaho. We have a very well-positioned political and social system that makes up our judicial system. The Constitution, as well as our statutes, have had a, uh, since, at least since the 1970s, a unified court system that is run by one body. In many states, you have a, an amalgam of county, city courts, some being run by uh, one political group, another by another political group. We have a unified court system as a result of court reform in the 1970s, all magistrates must be attorneys. All district judges historically have been attorneys. And we have, the Idaho legislature has seen the, the, uh, the beauty of making sure that our judges have significant um, experience before they can even apply to be a judge. The days of Judge Bob Brower coming six months out of law school and being your magistrate in Blackfoot, and a damn good one, I might add, um, are, are over. Uh, you've got to have a significant group of, of work before you can uh, do that. In addition, and I think this is uh, not known especially by some of the laypersons in the room, the Idaho State uh, Judiciary is a very decentralized uh, social organism. We have approximately 30 committees made up of experts in different fields, be it criminal law, child protective, domestic violence, felony sentencing, from soup to nuts, if it's in the ju judiciary, 
uh, we have a committee on, on that issue. And that's where the ideas from our members bubble up. Very few ideas come down in your Idaho State Judiciary. As a result of our committees, uh, we have the experts in the field, lay people, the lawyers, the judges, legislators, uh, any number of uh, viewpoints. They then will make recommendations in terms of rules or initiatives that uh, we then, uh, as a Supreme Court, review after they go through what we call our administrative uh, conference. So you not only have a centralized judicial system, you have an egalitarian judicial system with lots of input from its citizens, and I think that has done it, um, the Idaho judiciary, very well and, and positions us well to uh, have these new perspectives. Let's talk. What are the internal pressures? <clears throat> the internal pressures are basically uh, to achieve excellence. Whether you understand it or not, Idaho's judiciary has won, have won awards of national stature for their case management, for their domestic violence courts, for their, you name it, we have won awards throughout the nation. In fact, one of our new domestic violence pilot projects in Ada County was just asked to go to the national convention of domestic violence courts. So uh, one, our domestic violence court is now being uh, studied, and in fact we have a delegation from New York and a delegation from Minnesota coming in in the next couple of months to observe the domestic violence pilot project in uh, Ada County as a result of the presentations they made at the National Convention. Now, this happens all the time. They do it with our drug courts. Um, Justice Eisman, ex-Chief Justice Eisman, has won a national award for his work in drug courts. He's on the board of directors of the National Board for Drug Courts. Our drug courts are some of the best in the nation in terms of breadth and depth. And as a result, the internal uh, mechanism in the Idaho State Courts is for constant improvement, constant excellence, and we do that through pilot projects. Very creative, and they usually come up again through our committees, through our magistrates or district judges on the local level who see a problem and in fact want to solve it outside of the usual parameters of a traditional court setting. The other thing that we have just started, a new perspective, and truly is a new perspective internally, is an initiative called uh, Advancing Justice. We have brought a retired district judge, Judge Wood from Gooding. M many of you know Judge Barry Wood, uh, excellent jurist, a uh, very technical jurist, who has um, had been given a group of individuals uh, to support him in terms of um, computer science, in terms of statistic analysis, in terms of uh, support staff. And in that regard, we are looking at every type of case we do in the Idaho legislature from the bottom to the top, how can we do it better? And as a result, this group has gone to Child Protective Act courts, they have gone to domestic violence courts, they have gone to every one of our committees and said, what are the roadblocks to doing this more efficiently? 
What are the roadblocks for getting this work done properly and more efficiently? It has taken about two and a half years. I think we're going to have a report uh, and some major changes in that regard within the year. Um, it has pointed out some uh, very, in, very institutional, institutionally bound habits that we just don't need in this day and age. And I'll discuss a few of those uh, as I go on. So the internal pressure is, is just that. And then, of course, there's an internal pressure caused by the economic uh, downturn, and we've all heard about that. We've all struggled with it in our own law firms. We've struggled with it in our own businesses. Um, we've struggled <laughs> in it, at least I have, in our own homes. So uh, I, you don't want to hear about that too much. So what are the outside pressures? Well, for the first, not for the first time, but there has been for about the last five to ten years a, a huge shift in our analysis of what we do. We are here now not for lawyers. We are here now not for the judges. We are, in fact, here for the citizens. And what do our citizens demand of us as a judicial system? What are their habits? How can we meld seamlessly into those habits, into those expectations of modern life? And some of the ways that we've been able to do that are many. First of all, many things we do are online. Um, you can pay your traffic tickets online in certain jurisdictions. You can pay any number of your fines by credit cards, debit cards, etc., etc. Uh, you can post bail with your credit card. You can, all of these things, <laughs> I don't know that for a fact, but I have been told. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is, for the first time, we're trying to make it easy to come to court and, and do the things that you need to do in a courtroom. For instance, e-filing. We are trying, within the economic framework of the Idaho legislature, to... Uh, start e-filing, where lawyers will type things up on their computer, hit the send button, they go to the, your county court, they are filed, they are billed electronically or they pay electronically. Your clerk will then put that in an electronic file and if you need an appeal, they will send up instead of banker's boxes from the, like the Rhodes case, literally 70 or 80 of them, there will be two or three disks that will come up, the entire record. And uh, we are trying to get to that. The issue, of course, is money. <clears throat> One of the things that started our shift towards client, um, a client base has been our problem-solving courts. For years, those of us who were magistrates understood that there was no rehabilitation, real rehabilitation, that was working we had judges who for years would go to the legislature or to the Department of Corrections and say, you need rehabilitation, you need some programs, you need some stuff. We can't just put people in prison. And as a result, our problem-solving courts were an initiative in that regard. The basic issue for problem-solving courts, or the basic fundamental idea, is you get back in front of the judge on a very regular basis. And we know that you've got a problem 
and that we're going to deal with that problem. And therefore, if it is substance abuse, you can have a slip now and again, but that doesn't throw you into the penitentiary at $100 a day or $80 a day, etc. And as a result, the problem-solving courts started up again from the bottom up um, in Bonneville County and in Ada County, and they have been immensely successful. We now, uh, I think we are the Dillards of the judicial system. We have departments for everything in problem-solving courts. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, we've got juvenile problem-solving courts for DUI, mental health, substance abuse. Uh, it, I get a mental picture here of a buffet list at um, Royal Table or one of those places. We have adult substance abuse, DUI, mental health, because no one was really tracking these individuals who had uh, chronic mental illness and making sure that they were being monitored to take their uh, medications. And those have been a wild success throughout the state. We now have domestic violence because domestic violence truly is a chronic disease. You acquire it as a result of your childhood. You acquire it as a result of, of some personality defect that you believe you can, in fact, inflict your will physically, and, uh, and that's okay. Well, obviously, it's not okay. It affects your children. It affects the spouses. It affects society in general and often leads to significant pain, suffering, and even death. And now our domestic violence courts, based upon... You won't go to jail immediately. You will, however, be in this highly structured program, and you will be out, and you will have a job, and you will pay taxes, and you will go to your counseling, and you will do the following things, and if you don't, we will know about it within about a two-week to ten-day two ten period, and there will be an immediate sanction, and it probably won't be jail. It could be picking up trash. It could be any number of things rather than a, a significant increase in um, costs for um, incarceration. The thing that has blown up in this recession, the external uh, pressure, has been court assistance offices. For years, we understood that uh, people can't afford the legal system. There are a lot of us in this room, very privileged people, who cannot afford the legal system. And as a result, we started court assistance offices um, oh, about eight years ago. They are basically a place where you can go. You can't get your legal questions specifically answered, but you can have access to forms and how to fill them out, etc. 2009, approximately 30,000 people took advantage of those offices. Last year, 66,500 approximately went to court assistance offices because of the economic downturn. Again, this was unheard of when I started practicing law, that you could actually get a, some help from a court in this way. Our, uh, we've looked at our consumers, and today's consumer wants things online. They want, they want it faster. They want it more efficiently. And uh, we are hoping that our website, how many of you have seen our website? I don't suppose many of you search online for our website. But if you move into a new town and you want to know what your 
neighbor is like, truly, or the babysitter that you've hired for your kids, go to our website and go to the repository. It's click on the, the right-hand side at the very bottom of our website. It says repository. And you can look up anybody in this room, their entire judicial history. Have they been sued? Have they sued? Uh, what is their criminal background, if any? You will soon learn that although I don't have a club foot, I have a lead one because of the numerous speeding convictions I have. <laughs> and and uh, thank God that didn't come out in the uh, campaign last year. But uh, that's a direct response of what did our clients want? They wanted information. They wanted to be able to see what was being done in our courts. What other branch of government can you go visit and see all of the proceedings done right in front of you? Now, if you do go, you'll probably be bored to death. I mean, what can you learn from traffic court? But still, uh, what other branch of government is as transparent as the judiciary? And the repository is just an extension of that process. One of the things that we, were, we are looking for in terms of the appellate process is um, not only our e-filings, but in addition, you will soon be able to see the register of actions in the appellate case. If you have a case that is pending as an attorney or a citizen involved in that case or just an interested bystander, like some people were in the Rhodes matter, uh, you can, in the near future, be able to go on our website and see what has been filed, when it was filed, what hearings are set, etc. cetera. Um, again, because our clients have demanded it. The future. Like every state agency, there's going to be significant issues of pent-up demand uh, as we have gone through this repression, or whatever we can call it. In terms of our ju judiciary, we have four judicial positions that have not been filled. We are filling those with, uh, these are magistrates who have retired, and for the first time in Idaho's history, we, we're not going to replace them until things get better. Uh, that has never happened. We may have delayed a few times in order to uh, balance the budget with some personnel savings, but never just kept them open. We have, prior to the recession hitting, uh, approximately two years ago, we had nine requests for magistrates and district judges, uh, and none of those obviously have been filled. And as a result, uh, we need to address that. It was funny, we had an advocate, the uh, publication of the Idaho State Bar just came out with a beautiful uh, discussion of our ancient courthouses and the history of those courthouses. Well, the problem is they are falling down around our knees and the counties don't have money in which to repair and or build new ones. Have you ever been to Shoshone, Idaho? That uh, I... <laughs> When I, another great story, I was the public defender for Lincoln County. The first day I went in there, they said my client was down in the jail. I found, well, great, that's good. So I went down, and where's the jail? Well, it's downstairs. Well, uh, can, do you have a deputy that'll let me in? He said, no, we don't have a deputy down there. We just put him in there. And I said, all night? What if there's an emergency? Well, we've never had one. <laughs> okay. So I went down there, and honest to Pete, um, 
it there is a round enclosure, pie shaped, bars around that, nothing else, cots in the usual jail makeup, and then there's a walkway around it, another outer set of bars, and there's a yellow pail right there. And I asked my, my client, I said, what's that? He says, it's a toilet. I said, well, you, but you're, it's outside the walkway. How do you get there? Uh, well, I'll tell you what he said, a steady aim. <laughs> and so I immediately sued them and closed that down. But that courthouse still exists today. We have a courthouse in, uh, I'm going to get Sandpoint. Bonner County or Boundary County? I forget which. Sandpoint. They have horrendous uh, asbestos issues, so they started to ameliorate it, and that led to one thing, that led to another. We were supposed to be in six months ago, and then it was October, and now it looks like July, and who knows. But they moved one bookcase in Judge Heisey's uh, magistrate's room, and you could look out through the cracks in the brick to the main street down below. And that's, that's our county courthouses. And we have a very unwieldy constitutional method for financing new construction. And the, uh, as a result of two opinions I was unlucky enough to have to write, uh, most cities hate me as well as county government, but it's a very unwieldy way of financing needed new construction. And I don't know how we will address that issue, hopefully with the help of our legislature. And I'm not whining, I'm the luckiest guy in, in this room, I swear. But our other judges have not had a pay raise in five years. When other state employees were getting 1% raises, we got none. So uh, how are you supposed to attract the best and brightest if you don't get a pay raise in five years? Then uh, one last thing and then I'll stand for questions and I love them. Um, we have an anomaly in our problem-solving courts. The governor loves them, the legislature loves them, we love them, the citizens are given a second chance, a true second chance, and love the chance at it. But we are hindering ourselves if we really believe in trying to rehabilitate these individuals as full citizens uh, here in Idaho. We spend a lot of money on these problem-solving courts, we spend a lot of time rehabbing them, getting them family counseling, reacquainting, reunifying families, getting them jobs, they're paying taxes, they're not out on the street stealing to help their meth habit. The variable cost savings are immense for problem-solving courts. So what do we do? There's no way in Idaho to get a misdemeanor or a felony conviction off your record. So how do they continue that climb upward if they have a felony conviction. When today's society of security conscious employers, we've got a bunch of folks that can't get jobs and we put a lot of money into them. So how do we do this? How, how can we play this game smarter? A new perspective, it seems to me, on accountability. These folks have been accountable. They have gone and done the things we have asked them and I'm wondering if it is too much to ask of society because that arrest record will always be there. It is the, convic the conviction that in fact um, is troublesome uh, 
to real rehabilitation. Just food for thought, and um, I'm sure there's some in the room that cringe at it, but I've been saying this for 30 years. We have got to believe in rehabilitation because retribution by itself will not work completely to, uh, to get our citizens back. I mean, we incarcerate more people than the most nations in the world. We've got to come up and play the game smarter. Questions? Yes, I am six foot one, 190. Justice Burdick, you have given us a very uh, penetrating view of the inside workings of our court system, and I really would like the audience to understand you didn't take credit for this as the Chief Justice of Idaho, but not only is the Chief Justice responsible for leading the court, but the Chief Justice is the administrative head of the court system in Idaho. So there's a significant additional obligation that the Chief Justice uh, has to dispose of along with his duties as the Chief Judicial Officer of that very specific court. Well, rehabilitation and retribution and uh, the consequences of criminal behavior are very much in the minds of Idaho today, very much in mind particularly of members of this community and our neighbor communities in eastern Idaho in that Paul Ezra Rhodes was executed earlier this morning, put to death. And several questions that have come to me uh, to, to be put to you, uh, sir, really gets down to this. Is our judicial system and our process adequate to assure that we do not put innocent persons to death? I would, <clears throat> I would say um, all human endeavor is done within a certain framework, within a certain realm of competence. And every year and every decade we get better at the in the judicial system uh, finding out and sifting out the guilt guilty from the innocent, and if you're guilty, at what level are you guilty? It has been a, uh, it has been a work in progress, as you can see, because many of these individuals were sentenced in the 70s and 80s, and are just now, Mr. Fain, their CVAC um, is now getting resentenced, uh, we had another one who was found innocent and pardoned by a governor. And uh, so we've got at least three or four sentenced, found guilty in the 70s and 80s, and under the microscope of development have been found to have significant questions or, in fact, found legally innocent. So it's a work in progress, number one. It has never been at a higher level than right now. Many prosecutors in the state of Idaho will not consider the death penalty because of the microscope we put it, our, our um, uh, process, the lawyers involved, the judges involved, as well as the defendants involved in a death case, in a capital case. So the answer is a qualified yes because it is a human endeavor 
it will always have problems. But it has never been a better system than at this point in time, uh, based on science, based on post-conviction uh, procedures, strategies, etc. And uh, so, yes, I think it is. Now, is it quick? No. I mean, I, I uh, at the Idaho Historical uh, Museum in Twin Falls, or at the penitentiary, um, <laughs> I was part of the kids' day at the penitentiary, and I was dressed as the Mad Hatter. Those of you who went to law school with me would find that perfect. <laughs> I was in character. So, um, but in doing so, they had the histories of some of the inmates who were sentenced to die in the old days. One of them from Twin Falls was found, was arrested, found guilty, had an appeal, and was executed within eight months. Compare that to the Rhodes case of today. So it is not, it is not quick, um, but I think it is at the highest level it's ever been. Follow-up question uh, really related to that and related to what you have just explained to us. Ethical considerations notwithstanding, what was the comparative cost of all the appeals and the ultimate execution compared with incarcerating someone like Rhodes for life? Oh, there's, there's no doubt. It's much cheaper to spend your entire life in the Idaho State Penitentiary than uh, to be um, executed by the state of Idaho. There are studies after studies after studies from all sorts of states, different mechanisms, different parameters, and it is always cheaper for determinate life rather than uh, capital punishment. There's considerable concern across the nation, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, about our court systems, uh, principally caused by the economic downturn that you made reference to earlier and that everyone here has experienced, certainly the state of Idaho has experienced but considerable concern about the impacts of that on our judicial system, our court system, our system of justice, and what, uh, what impact that may have had in Idaho. And the real question is, uh, are our courts in Idaho at this point in time being adequately funded? All right. First of all, I have to give a kudo to some people, and not because Senator Davis is in the audience. I go to national conventions all over the nation, not only of justices, but of lawyers, of judges, and have done so my entire adult life. And never do we have the problems that they are facing in other states with intergovernmental conflict. There are states where the legislature are seen as the enemy, the judiciary as a batch of elitist nitpickers. Uh, it is open warfare in some states. When I spoke of our court system being uniquely qualified to respond to internal and external pressures, we have been supported each and every time to the um, uh, fullest ability of the Idaho State Legislature and the executive branch of Idaho, no matter if it was a Democrat or Republican in that position. Uh, I think they, they understand there is a place for the Idaho judiciary. Now, do we need more? Absolutely. I've just indicated to you some other areas. 
that uh, there are pent up demands and we could do more if we had more money but that's the same in your business you could expand your business if you had more money you don't so uh, you do the best you can with what you have we are pretty much at the bottom right now I can say that and say it safely uh, we have made significant administrative changes we have cut employees we have not rehired at one time out of a staff of probably 50 we had 19 vacancies and uh, we have just now started to get some of those refilled and they're not they're not chauffeurs they're not people of that nature these are court reporters for district judges for gosh sakes the people who take down the the record the people who preserve your rights and we've just now hired two of them we've hired uh, one person in the administrative office I can't remember what it is so we're slowly starting to come back same as every other administrative office or legislative office etc so the message is we have been supported to the fullest extent possible by our legislature and our governor but it's been tough times and we're at the bottom now and we're, we need to start building it up the follow-on question then is has it reached a point where in your opinion it's negatively impacting the quality of justice that our courts provide for this state well I'm not and I, one thing about living in a one thing about living in an ivory tower <laughs> that's what they call the Supreme Court building is I don't know I think that would be a question you could ask any of the lawyers here um, in the privacy of their own home <laughs> not in front of some other judge or ask a judge in the privacy of their own home I think that's really where the rubber meets the road here's what I will say though as I've alluded to uh, we have done more with la our our civil filings have gone up approximately 30 percent in the last 10 years uh, drug courts one thing that people don't understand about problem-solving courts these judges that do that this is in addition to their other caseload so if I'm a judge and I'm overloaded with cases and I'm a drug court judge that just goes on top of everything they do it at nights some have done it on Saturdays they do it in the mornings they do it during lunch hours it's a remarkable story of people working at a calling and not a job if you're in the Idaho State Judiciary you're not employed you have answered a call and with these down with this economic downturn and the increase in caseload that's what it has to be these people are working uh, very very hard on your behalf I hope that answered the question. I think it did. Uh, you emphasized the importance of the uh, relationship between citizens and their court system. And uh, it's, it's obviously an important link, one sometimes that in times past was uh, not emphasized in the same way that it's being emphasized today. Idaho elects some of her judges, including Supreme Court justices 
we appoint others and let them stand for uh, retention. The federal district court and circuit court judges are appointed for life. Uh, which do you believe is a preferable system? Well, if I could get a job for life and the raises the federal judges get, I'd, I'd like that one, wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I know there are going to be some people on the radio that don't understand my body language, et cetera, but um, it has its ups and it has its downs. I just ran a statewide uh, election last year in 2010. It had some significant benefit. It had some significant detriment. During that time period, I couldn't really do much work. I was on the road. I had to be on the road. I couldn't get reelected sitting in Boise. Um, being on the road, I met some wonderful people who worked very hard on my behalf. And it restored in me after, uh, I guess, about 29 years and a rejuvenation of my commitment uh, to Idaho based on the election. Because when you go out and you meet them and you know how important it is, and then they vote for you, it is a remarkable um, experience and you have to pay them back. So that, for me, was a very personal benefit of the election. We have the influence of money, whether you want it or not. I had. Uh, significant fundraising that was done without my knowledge. I still don't know um, uh, who gave me what. Some of the money that I was not within my campaign was not solicited. And um, um, again, good and bad in that regard. Many of you heard those uh, commercials. Um, they were pretty flattering, I thought. Um, but on the other hand, when that group didn't abide by the law, I was painted by the same brush, even though I had no control over that same group. So again, there are benefits, there are uh, disadvantages. I think, quite frankly, Idaho has a pretty good system. And the reason is we have strived as judges, again, in our calling to, do, to ameliorate as much as possible the influence of money. We're not to where you are in Texas, Ohio, Mississippi, any number of other states, because we do have blind trusts that we set up for any amounts of uh, campaign funds. I still haven't looked at that. Don't want to. Um, we have a very um, appropriate Justice Eisman had some outside money come in and he has disqualified himself in every one of those cases where he knows who the donor was. And I will do the same. So if, if the judges of Idaho stay true to their calling, uh, it doesn't matter how much you give them. If you give them a lot, they're not going to hear your case. We, in addition, have a gradation of Idaho, another amalgam in Idaho that very few other states in the nation have. Your local courts are elected by your local politicians, and then you have a retention vote. That's your magistrates, another, another 70s reform. 
You know, they almost had retention elections for your district judges, too. But that couldn't get through the legislature, so they just did it with the magistrates. But how did they keep local influence and control? Number one, you have a large, cumbersome in some cases, magistrate commission that picks who's going to be your next judge. A merit selection, if you will. And then that person stands for election every four years. A political connection, if you will. That's a great combination, it seems to me. Our vacancies uh, by death, disability, or retirement are filled by the Judicial Commission, a merit input. With 27-page application to, that goes to, every, to the Judicial Council for every judicial applicant, that is then reviewed, and you waive your rights to credit reports, medical reports, police record, tax records, health records, are there any other records? <laughs> you waive all of those and those records go to the Judicial Council and they are reviewed by that group. They then pick four, hopefully the best and the brightest, between two and four to go to the governor. Merit with a political influence. And your district judges the same. And then they stand for an election. But your district judges don't have to run a statewide election, they run a district-wide election. That makes sense because you folks know these people. Somebody in Orofino wouldn't know, um, I don't know, judge, uh, district judges, Judge uh, Watkins, for instance. Um, and, and that's, again, fair. You would have, and then your appellate judges who have a statewide impact run a statewide campaign, but again are filled, uh, vacancies filled by the Judicial Council. So it's a, I think it's a pretty good mix in Idaho if the judges will stay out of the money. That is the key. They did a study in Texas about three or four years ago. If you don't do anything at all today, write down justice at stake the Brennan Law Center. They have any number of articles, studies, etc., about retention and popular election. Number one, in Texas, all of your elections are partisan. We have nonpartisan elections. Um, secondly, uh, they, they did a study, the Brennan Law Center did a study, and they found that where you pay millions to get a Texas Supreme Court justice, millions in terms of campaign contributions and a party designation, it didn't necessarily screw up the legal analysis, but in Texas you have to have a writ of certiorari. In Idaho you get an automatic appeal to the Supreme Court. Doesn't matter if it's a traffic court or a death case. In Texas it's a writ of certiorari and the court there, the Supreme Court reviews the cases and will accept only those that they want and it was an issue of access. If you had contributed over 700 or under over $250,000, 75% of the time you got access to the Idaho States, to the Texas Supreme Court. If it was under $250,000, that only took, that remaining 25% was that group. So you paid for access there. Now it can be argued, well, mobile oil's there. They 
pay a lot of political contributions, but still, you can't, you can't fault the numbers. It's an issue of access. All the states that I've mentioned are now trying to do something about the corruption of the money, not necessarily the election, but the corruption of the money. And if Idaho will stay true to its calling, we won't have those problems. Another very long answer to a short question, and I'm sorry. Well, the, the question was short. The answer is understandably long and uh, a difficult one, and there is a lot of difference among our states in how it's done. Uh, the concern, obviously, of people is the influence that money buys. Access is the way you've termed it. Uh, that's the concern. One of the members of our audience has asked a, a very important question, I think, and that is uh, what you see as the implications of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in the so-called Citizens United case, which authorized corporations to make political contributions across the board, whether that would be in elections for Congress, in elections for a state office, or for that matter, in judicial elections. What influence do you think that might have on the money that's available to judicial elections and the access that might buy? Um, as I indicated, the money is the corruption. The election is not the corruption. And anything that, that, Im that increases the unfrettered amount of money in an election is corrupting in my viewpoint. Now, having said that, I have never understood, and I'm, I'm it, this is going to be like the mouse that roared, honestly, because what I think about the United States Supreme Court opinions and 350 will get you coffee at Starbucks, okay? So I, I preface my remarks in that regard. I am, you know, I, uh, I know who I am. I'm a, I'm a lawyer from Idaho, and for me to say that the Supreme Court is wrong is just that, the mouse that roared. Now, having said that, I, it is amazing to me in a country in which there were no corporations when the Constitution was put together, how they can then say that a business entity has unbridled free speech to the point of us in terms of commercials, in terms of political spending, in oh my, so many ways. I just, how they got there, I'm sure was very studied. It makes no sense to this Idaho kid, I'll guarantee it. I'll be criticized for that, but it's true. I mean, there weren't corporations back then. If they were, they were chartered by the king or the state. So, do I think that's a good opinion? No, because I, I just don't understand why corporations get unbridled free speech. I don't mind them making a living. But do they have to put out advertising like Benetton did just recently with the Pope kissing the Imam of Egypt? Now that's just an absurdity. Go on the internet and see the Benetton advertising. The Pope is going to actually sue them 
to get that off the, off the airways. So, uh, short answer, take, get 350 and go to Starbucks with it. 350 will buy you a cup of coffee, right? That's right. Yeah, it's good. Let us change uh, the questions here a little bit to something that is very recently in the minds of Idaho citizens. Uh, one of the members of that distinguished commission is with us here today. So people are concerned about redistricting. We've just done it, a decennial exercise that has just been concluded and we have just learned has been challenged again in the courts. And as you reminded me as we talked a moment before lunch, this is a case that is brought directly in the Supreme Court, not one that has to start out in a district court and work its way to a Supreme Court, but one that is brought to you in the first instance. This member of your audience wants to know, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> it's a pending case and I cannot comment. <laughs> no, but I'll comment as much as I can. Procedurally. Procedurally. How manage it? Um, we, we got the lawsuit on uh, today's Friday. We got the lawsuit on Wednesday, I believe. Most of yesterday, I was putting together a packet for a conference that we're going to have on Monday to address that very issue. How do we handle this issue? Now, uh, a quick history lesson. Ten years ago, there were three cases that spanned approximately four years, I believe, uh, addressing redistricting. The first, basically, in shorthand, the re court returned it because the commission did not abide by the 10% per se rule that you cannot have a 10% deviation in a congressional district um, without, vi uh, without violating the uh, U U.S. Constitution. So um, it was over 10%. It's a per se violation, meaning automatic, and back it went. They then brought a new plan that was under the 10%. But in your redistricting, you not only have constitutional provisions of don't split the counties, et cetera, you have statutory things that the legislature has added throughout the years, community interests, precincts, uh, highways, uh, connectivity, uh, any number of legislative uh, mandates that that committee has to put in to a mix. Those are all factual issues. What is a community of interest? Uh, is Idaho, does Idaho Falls have a community of interest with ARCO? I don't know. We'd have to hear arguments and then decide, yes, that is a community of interest. Um, does North Boise have a community of interest with Eagle? Well, based upon politics, absolutely not. <laughs> North Boise is a very um, hard enclave of Democrats, and Eagle obviously has a lot of our new arrivals who think they're here in Nirvana. But um, <laughs> because we're so conservative. So. You mix legal analysis and factual findings. And how they handled it 10 years ago was they appointed a re well-respected retired district judge who then uh, was a special master and he went out and found facts and made a recommendation back to the Supreme Court. This is often done in complex federal and state court cases. 
Then the parties came in and argued about those findings of fact, and the court made a decision. Back it went. Then it came back again with those changes. It was under the 10%, and we said, you're blessed, and off we went. That's the 2002 plan. And uh, so the procedure is, what are we going to do this year? The same analysis of law and fact exist in the complaint. Uh, there are some um, conclusions, conclusory statements of facts. How do we find those out? Uh, this commission put together a remarkable document of findings of fact and conclusions and explained to us why they did the things they did. Um, uh, and so then uh, what effect do we give that, if any, procedurally, or how much credibility do we give it? Uh, will it be up to the objectors to punch holes in it without a special master? We don't know. We'll know on Monday, but of course that you won't know until the order comes out. But that's what we're kind of wrestling with. And uh, I will guarantee you, as you noticed on our first order with the first commission that did not um, uh, come up to its legislative duty, we had an order out in two days rather than massaging it anymore and said, you're out, there's a new one in, all these arguments that people are making to us are moot because the statute says we have to have a plan to look at. There was no plan. We start from scratch, and we did that in a two-day time period. Uh, I think you'll find this court uh, doesn't want to waste any time on what is basically a political issue. We will try to find something to do that is efficient as well as legal and as well as careful. Thank you. Thank you. We'll look forward to your decision. Okay. Uh, we'll hope that we have, again, uh, found a way to divide our legislative districts and our congressional districts in a way that meets the Constitution. One final question now that I know to be of profound interest and importance to at least 50% of this audience, Judge. I am a good dancer. <laughs> well, this kind of works for that. How can we encourage more women to join the judiciary. Oh, we've, that's, um, that is wonderful. Uh, and you know, and that, that goes into another initiative that I hope to kind of reemphasize in my, my, during my four years having to do with women offenders, not meaning that women judicial candidates are offenders, but I think we need to look at Idaho's treatment of women offenders and whether or not it is gender specific enough to, to uh, really do as much rehabilitation as we could, not only in our problem-solving courts, but in our um, jails and in our prisons also. So I hope to be able to address some of those issues in the future. Now, women as judges. First of all, um, I think about four years ago this was a problem we saw before my honorable uh, political opponent John Bradbury. Uh, we had put together one of these committees on recruitment and retention looking at the entire reason why we weren't getting good large pools of people to uh, become judges. Not only a lack of women but uh, minorities as well as very qualified individuals, the best and the brightest. And uh, they put out a huge survey to all the bar members 
remarkable response in that regard. Um, and you can see that online, again, on our website, the responses and the percentages and the whole bar graphs, everything. And one of the problems was that women uh, thought the political process was skewed as against women. They thought that elections uh, were an impediment to becoming a judge, didn't necessarily want to go out and tumble around in an election format, and then, quite frankly, pay, which is always one of the top three problems that we have in recruiting the best and the brightest. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we started uh, uh, programs. One of the best groups that has really moved this issue forward, and I have to give them credit, is the Idaho Women Lawyers. They have done remarkable work in the last two to three years. A representative attends every interview session of the Judicial Council for every person who m makes an application. They write down the questions, they write down the answers, then they take them back to a da database that they can then share with proposed or prospective women candidates. They go out and recruit women candidates. They have had speakers from Governor Otter to myself, to Judge Bradbury, to uh, Chief Judge Grattan, to Judge Karen Lansing, Judge Gutierrez, talk to them about why women don't um, put in. And a lot of it was they just didn't suit up. I mean, they didn't apply. And if you're going to become a judge, you at least have to apply for those three reasons. And so we have, we have tried to work on perception. Here's what this system looks like. The Judicial Council has gone to the Idaho Women Lawyers. Um, we have given um, speeches uh, from that committee throughout the state. Uh, we are actively encouraging them. And in, uh, we have now appointed in the last year Lynn Norton, a woman district judge in Ada County, a magistrate in Twin Falls, Nicole Cannon, a magistrate in the 7th District, a very talented uh, U.S. attorney, um, assistant U.S. attorney. So we're getting a lot more women candidates who are being uh, suiting up, if you will, and uh, they're beginning, they are be giving good, uh, good consideration. So yes, we've, we've tried to address the issue, and, and I hope more of them apply. Michelle Mallard is our new That's magistrate correct. in the 7th District. I apologize if she's here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Your Honor, for a very candid, very informative uh, session. We appreciate your having taken the trouble to be with us. Thank you very much for it. And we have the Cup, the Great City Club oh. of Idaho Falls Cup, with which you will be awarded for your service.